Hello and welcome back to the Alonzo Bet. This is our fourth episode, our first one coming to you live on podcast streaming services. That's right, folks. Previously, you weren't able to, but today you're able to find us on iTunes, Google Play, and your favorite podcast streaming service, including Spotify. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. We were able to release the first three episodes over the last few days, and we've gotten a lot of positive interaction mm-hmm. from our family and friends and some new fans that we didn't even know before this. And it's it's been, you know, really nice feedback. Really nice. We've been hearing a lot about what you guys want to hear, so we're going to try to gear the podcast in that direction towards mm-hmm. what our listeners want as as the days move forward. But, you know, we're really excited about the direction of the Alonzo bet. Exactly. And if this is your first episode joining us, we're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we want to start today off by uh, bringing up something a viewer pointed out to us. And uh, someone from Arizona actually realized that I did say Chris Sale had won a Cy Young in the last episode when that is actually not true. But Chris, he's, he's been top three a few times, so I'm not, right. not going to blame you too heavily, Aaron. He's been top three twice, he's been top six seven times, and he's even had a top ten MVP finish, so this guy's a stud, but I did say something that wasn't true, so we want to get ahead of that. And I think uh, Aaron brings up a, a great thing, is we want to keep ourselves accountable as we mm-hmm. move forward in these podcasts. So if you ever notice that we say something that's factually wrong, we have a take that you think is just flat out wrong that you disagreement that you disagree with. We're going to be doing this corrections phase uh, at the beginning of every podcast and letting you know what we got wrong. So if you catch us and see that we got something wrong, let us know. And ways you can get in touch with us is you can either contact us on our brand new Twitter account at the Alonzo Bet. Or you can email us at the podcast email, thealonzobet at gmail.com. And we really want to hear from you guys because, you know, this podcast is a lot of fun for us to do, but we also want it to be sort of a valuable thing for, for our listeners to listen to. So if you have any suggestions for the podcast, you have anything you want us to talk about, just come out, reach out to us. We're going to try to try to really do what you guys want to hear. That's right. And uh, in terms of our Twitter account... We do have a very fun set of images as our photo and as our background. So if anybody can tell us the source of both our primary icon photo and the banner photo without reverse Google image searching it, we'll know if you did. Trust us. We may also award a second premium Fangraphs promotion. Yeah, and for those of you who did not listen to episode three or who have not been on our Twitter account yet... uh, Fangraphs is in a bit of trouble as the MLB season has uh, yet to happen and the site traffic is down. So we are awarding one free year-long ad-free membership to a random listener who leaves a comment on uh, our podcast, uh, leaves a positive cam- comment on our podcast. If you if you call us assholes, I don't think we're going to give you a Fangraphs I mean, membership. we want to hear it. We like constructive criticism, but uh, this tournament's really only for people who are yeah. enjoying the pod. O- only for our friends. That's right. So that actually leads us nicely into uh, the most recent baseball news that we've seen, and that is the Jeff Passan report that came out just two days ago, indicating that the MLB is focused on a plan that could allow the season to start as early as May. This is incredibly exciting for us and baseball fans everywhere. Sam, break this proposal down for us. Yeah, so basically the plan of the proposal is 
how can we get back to baseball given the current limitations of social distance, distancing measures under the coronavirus pandemic? So what the proposal basically says is we are going to play all of our games in Aaron's native state, Arizona. Go Snakes! All the players will basically live in a few hotels and basically just live together mm-hmm. and then only drive to uh, select few ballparks, which will include Chase Field, where the Diamondbacks play, and then also maybe 10 to 15 spring training stadiums, since a lot of teams have uh, spring training facilities in Arizona. And this would basically allow... Uh, the entire Major League Baseball season, basically until social distancing measures are, are over, to continue just in Arizona. There were, uh, I, I forgot to mention there would be no fans at these games. No fans. Uh, but, but this is one way in which we might be able to see some Major League Baseball sooner rather than later, and that would be really exciting. It is extremely exciting, but one has to wonder logistically, to pull this off, I mean, we won't even actually go into the health logistics of everything because they're indicating a high level of testing for players and essential personnel. Those tests just aren't readily available. Then, of course, there's the ethical question of testing seemingly healthy people on like a weekly or monthly basis when those tests are extremely needed for sick people. There's a lot of moving parts. Have you heard anything that the MLB might be doing, uh, maybe not in that arena, but in the arena of gameplay to try and make this more like a normal regular season. Yeah, so, I mean, there are a few things to consider in gameplay. One is that we will certainly be starting after a normal opening day, so the teams want to be able to play as many games as possible. And second, that it is possible we start playing games when social distancing measures still need to be enforced. So there are a few ways that MLB has considered being able to deal with these problems. One is using electronic strike zone, which has been tested out in some minor league games, but is really been thought of as years away in Major League Baseball. But if we implement an electronic strike zone, that will allow basically there not to be this uh, close distance between the umpire and the catcher and hitter. So a minor point there. I think the strike zones have been tested in indie ball leagues and like minor league exhibition games. So I don't remember whether it's like the All-Star game or a Futures game or something, but I don't think they've been in regular use, maybe some occasional use in the MLB minor leagues, but something like that. So that's one way to take... Uh, umpires off of the field and then I also read somewhere Sam that they're planning on having the players sit in the stands six feet away from one another during the game yeah that that seems really crazy so so I mean obviously you know if the players were to sit very close to each other in the dugout that would certainly certainly be violating social social distancing measures now I have to say that you know while I like the I you know while the idea of sitting in the dugout seems like a clever answer to these social distancing rules, it seems like the reality just is that if a player on a certain team were to contract the coronavirus, it's very likely that many other players on the team would get it, whether or not they're sitting in the dugout or in the stands. Right. And I think that is something that you know we might have to contend with in, a, in, in the season moving forward. It is totally possible that maybe half or an entire team gets taken out by the virus and they have to either start forfeiting games, play games entirely with their minor league players. So, I mean, this is going to be a season like no other. Exactly. And I think us as fans have to prepare for that and basically take as much baseball as we can get without getting too critical of how MLB chooses to deal with these exactly. things. Exactly. And just to run through a couple more of those rule changes so you guys are kind of up to speed on everything that's being considered today. They're thinking about implementing seven-inning double headers to try and get the game closer to a typical 162-game season. 
They're eliminating mound visits altogether. It hasn't happened for sure, but they're considering eliminating mound visits altogether. So no pitcher catcher mound visits, no pitcher pitching coach mound visits. And then uh, there's the regular use of microphones on the field to implement an enjoyed or kind of a um, enhanced viewing opportunity for the TV fans at home since no fans will be able to go see and the game. I'm actually curious, Aaron, were you able to catch any of these sort of spring training games before spring training got shut down where they were including the player input on the field? Well, as I, like I know many, many baseball fans do, when spring rolls around and spring training starts, I'm watching those useless games full of minor leaguers every day. I'm watching guys who, as hopefully you guys can tell from the pod, Sam and I watch a lot of baseball. We read about a lot of baseball. We know so many players. I'll watch games where past the fifth inning, I see three guys I know for the whole rest of the game. But yes, I was watching them. And those mic'd up moments with guys I know and love would bring an amazing element to this game. There's so many great, great characters in baseball. There's so much less non TV appropriate content going on on the field for the most part than some other sports. And I think to be able to mic players up and hear their true authentic personalities is exactly what baseball could use to gain popularity and to help people understand why it's the greatest sport on the planet. I, I think it definitely would add a lot to the games. I do think that the league needs to be cognizant about understanding that these would be real competitive games and not spring training games. So the players are going to be locked in. They might not be responding to interviewer questions, you know, while a pitch is being thrown and things like that. So I don't think the logistics are quite as easy as a spring training game where sort of the players don't really care about the result and things like that. But I think if we can incorporate more and more player dialogue into the live broadcast, that's only for the good of both baseball and its fans. Absolutely. And I think that all of this kind of brings up a broader point, which is, Many, many baseball fans uh, who've been following the game for longer than a couple of years have seen dramatic changes in not just the structure of the organization. Bud Selig obviously added a second wildcard spot. He kind of changed the way that the All-Star Game and the playoffs were played. That's organizational. We've seen gameplay changes. We've seen mound visits limited. We've now seen a three-batter minimum implemented. We've seen electronic strike zones tested out. We've seen all kinds of things from this commissioner, Rob Manfred. And I'm curious to hear, since we're on the topic of rule changes, Sam, what is your opinion of the direction baseball has been taking? So, I, you know, I think there are two ways we can look at this. One is sort of going through specific rule changes and saying whether or not I disagree with them. For example, you know, the three batter minimum, which actually was going to be instituted this year, but we haven't seen yet. Right. But it, likely will be still. Yeah, likely. I think it definitely will still be instituted if the season happens. You know, something like the three-batter rule I don't think will actually affect the game that much. You know, there might be a few lefty specialists that are out of the game. But I don't think things will change that much. One thing I do object to, though, is the general sort of perspective of, you know, Major League Baseball that they need to, like, shorten the games. As if somehow the game's being three hours and two minutes as opposed to two hours and 55 minutes are what's caused a decrease in fandom in the major right. leagues. I think what the the league should focus more on rather than sort of acting as if there's a problem in baseball is promoting some of the amazing personalities that exactly. are in baseball. Cause I think that's something that a league like the NBA does really well yeah. 
where a lot I know a lot of people who are quote unquote NBA fans, but who really don't know much about basketball as a sport. But they enjoy the league because they enjoy the drama, they enjoy the personality of the players, mm-hmm. and you know, baseball is a game that's rich of different, you know, rich of many different amazing personalities. And I think Major League Baseball just needs to find the right way to show these personalities off to you know, new and incoming fans. And that's how to grow the game, not to shorten the game lengths by 10 minutes. Sam, I am so glad you said all that because I agree wholeheartedly and I was ready to make a very impassioned pitch. I feel very strongly about the direction Rob Manfred's taking the league. And Sam brought up the three batter rule earlier. This is the perfect example. I agree that the three batter rule will not have a massive effect on the game. It will drive a couple players out of baseball. It will change the calculus of a manager's on-field decisions. There's no question. But it won't have a massive impact on what teams are great, what teams are not. Uh, It won't change the number of wins for any individual team by more than two or three, I would say, tops. But my point is your point. Why are we trying to shave three to five minutes off the game by limiting the number of mound visits plus pit batters you have to face as a pitcher, when the problem is not that the game is long. The problem is that the game is not engaging young people. The problem is that people don't understand baseball. They don't want to take the time because it feels old, it feels stuffy, and it feels exclusive. And the problem is not gameplay. Baseball is not a time sport. It's the only not time sport, and that's part of the beauty of it. It needs to retain its individual value, which is so different than the NBA and the NFL, while gaining new viewers. And I believe, as we discussed previously, that is best done by highlighting the amazing personalities and broad range of cultures and people types and skill sets that exist in the MLB, while also making the game fun for casual viewers and for people who understand it well like us. And I do think another part of that actually goes to the owners. Games are so expensive to go to. I mean, NBA and NFL games are too, but there's half as many NBA games and almost 10 times fewer NFL games. And so you can pay more to go. The MLB has so many teams with empty seats in their stands. Why aren't they saying kids come free on a Tuesday afternoon home game against the worst team in the league? Why not? Why aren't they saying a family of four comes for 20 bucks flat to a Wednesday night game against the bottom of your division. It's mind-boggling. I've been to too many Chase Field games. I've seen games at stadiums all over the country. Stadiums have open seats. It does not make sense to me that they're not finding a way to bring more players to the stadium, which is by far the easiest venue to learn and appreciate the game. And as someone who grew up in the New York market, I'm definitely uh, on board with complaining (laughs) about ticket prices. I mean, you know... This is outside of baseball, but the the ticket prices that the New York Knicks charge are basically criminal. They've been the worst team in basketball so for two decades, and I have to pay $100 to see a game. It's insane. But, like, it's crazy because even the Browns, when they were losing, like, you know, 16 games, 15, 16 games back-to-back, you still had to pay, like, 60 bucks to go to a game bare minimum. What are you paying 60 bucks to see the worst team in all of sports at that time? Yeah. So... I mean, that's just a little aside, but this is a very interesting discussion. It's something Sam and I will be keeping our eyes on in the future as we go forward. The way the game's changing affects the way we understand it, the way people watch it, and we'll have to see what Rob Manfred keeps doing 
Spoiler alert, I hate this guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure I hate Rob Manfred quite as much as Aaron, but I'm not crazy about the direction yeah. he's taking the league in. And I do think what we need out of a commissioner is a guy who actually likes the game of baseball. That would be great. Yeah. How can a fan who doesn't like the game go and like the game when all he hears about it is that the commissioner is constantly trying to change it because the commissioner thinks it sucks? That's not a good message yeah. to send. Okay, so, I mean, I think we've sort of talked about the recent developments in what we might see in Major League Baseball returning. So let's move to sort of our our every episode segment, which I think we're really enjoying. We've gotten some feedback from some fans really from all spectrum of the baseball world, whether it's really intense fans like us or people who are just trying to learn the game a bit more, they're really enjoying this sort of stats corner segment where we sort of explain one advanced baseball metric for them in detail. Exactly. So, so what are we going to go into today? So today I'm really excited. I kind of pushed for this. We've been going hitter, hitter, hitter lately, but at the end of the day, Pitchers are the backbone of a good team. Being able to put someone on the mound who you trust not to put batters on base and not to let them cross. So I will start by saying the reason we focused on hitters initially is because in Sam and I's opinion, hitters, advanced statistics for hitters are much better at developed than advanced statistics for pitchers. They're certainly, hitters are easier to evaluate than pitchers. Exactly. And the reason for that is that pitchers have so many extenuating circumstances. Someone's calling a pitch. He's trying to execute a pitch. His fielders need to be able to make the play and get an out for him to be positively affected. And similar to hitters, he's pitching in different stadiums all the time with different situations. That, again, is similar to hitters. But so for that reason, we started with uh, hitter advanced statistics. You know, we did general projections. We did war, wins above replacement. We then did WRC+, weighted runs created+. plus. And now we want to look at pitchers. And I think the best advanced statistic out there right now for pitchers is something called FIP. That's fielding independent pitching. And what fielding independent pitching does is it really kind of follows the three true outcome model. It looks at homers, walks, and hit by pitches, and Ks. Those are the three things a pitcher can control. It takes those, it weights them, and then it kind of puts it on the scale of ERA. Yeah, so, you know, to get into more detail there, I think, you know, some of our listeners might be thinking, well, what do you mean the only things that a pitcher can control are walks, strikeouts, and home runs? Because, uh, you know, they might say, hey, if a pitcher gets an out, they did their job, they generated weak contact or something like that. But if you actually get into the granular details of the of the data, you'll see that there's a lot of noise year to year on basically whether or not a pitcher is able to continue to get outs on something uh, on batted balls in play. So you've heard us discuss from the context of hitters in other years batting average on balls in plays, uh, balls in play. But this is something that's even more relevant for pitchers, where basically a pitcher is all they can do is basically throw the pitch and let the ball be hit. Then they need their fielders to make the play. And sure, it's better to allow softer contact than harder contact, but if you actually look to sort of year-to-year variations in data, you'll see that pitchers generating weak contact is really not a skill that you see sort of staying with pitchers year-to-year outside of like some of the very best Right, some of the best like sinker ballers. And Sam, I do just want to jump in here real quick and say you just mentioned all a pitcher can do is throw the ball and let him hit it. 
But actually, that's the point of FIP, and that's why pitchers who K are so much more valuable now. Exactly. Because if you don't let the hitter put the ball in play, there is no opportunity for your fielders to mess it up. There is no opportunity for a runner to advance generally, excluding a wild pitch or a pass ball on strike three. And there really is no opportunity for a team to score runs. So that's why Ks, and they're favored by FIP, but they're now also favored by GMs, have become a premium in this league. That's why you've seen strikeouts get so emphasized by teams. And part of the reason why you've seen strikeouts just rise dramatically in Major League Baseball over the last decade or so. Another reason is the increase in stuff these pitchers have. Oh my God, they throw so hard. They have such nasty breaking balls. But, and a third reason, Sam, is that batters have now decided it's more valuable to have extra base hits, and they've increased their exactly. sellout to an extent. Yeah, there, there are a lot of variables that have led to this. But, but it's part, a perfect storm yeah, is what it really pa- is. Part of it is a general focus on increased strikeouts in the league by uh, pitching staffs. But I want to get into a bit more of the detail of FIP, which is basically that all that FIP takes into account is – how many strikeouts a pitcher has, how many walks a pitcher has, because again, when you walk a batter, you've just let a guy on base. You haven't given your fielders a chance to make a play. And finally, when you allow a home run, because a home run is basically the worst outcome that can happen for a pitcher, and the fielders can do nothing about it outside of some edge cases where someone robs a home run. Right. They, they would but, do not really count in the overall yeah. uh, games played in this But season. basically, this is why it's called fielding independent pitching where basically it takes strikes, walkouts, and home runs, it applies weights to each of these outcomes, and then as Aaron said earlier, it adjusts it to an ERA scale. And you might be asking, well, how, why is FIP a better stat than ERA? I, I, you know, I still think that pitcher contact, you know, the type of contact that a pitcher allows matters, you know, not allowing a runner to score matters. But if you actually look at something, you know, which is basically the pre- Predictive power of a stat. So how well does how well a pitcher performed in a, in a stat show how well they're going to do the next year? Which is basically a, a proxy for like how you know how well the stat the stat approximates that player's skill. FIP is a much more predictive stat than ERA. So the the year to year correlation of a pitcher's FIP is much higher than the year to year correlation of a pitcher's ERA. And that actually brings me to another pit, uh, fielding independent pitching stat, which is called XFIP. So XFIP stands for expected FIP. And basically what it does is it's the same as FIP, but rather than say that all a pitcher was responsible for was uh, strikeouts, walks, and home runs, it takes the amount of home runs they allowed and basically adjusts it to the average home run for, per fly ball rig in the league. So basically it says... You know, a pitcher gave up a certain number of home runs, but, you know, on average, a certain percentage of fly balls end up as home runs, and a pitcher doesn't have that much control over what percentage of their fly balls end up as home runs. And you might think that that's not true, but statistically it is. The year-to-year correlation of a pitcher's home run to fly ball rate is, is fairly small. And I think a great example of this is Edwin Diaz, who was in 2018 a shutdown perfect closer for the Mariners. He ended up saving 57 games. He wasn't, sorry, he, he wasn't perfect as a closer, but basically he says... Aaron is just low-key trying to upset me right he's now. As, <laughs> he's as good as you could ask for. No, I think you're going to like this, Sam. And in 2018, 
He had a FIP of 161. He had an XFIP of 178, which is essentially the same. The, that small yeah. difference is not something to really and, care about. And as we said earlier, this is equivalent to having an ERA below two. He was, he was incredible. Which he did, by the way. He had an ERA of 1.96 that year. His home run to fly ball rate was 10.6, which is very league average. The league average home run to fly ball rate is about 10%. Year to year changes a little bit. Last year it was a little higher because of the balls. It it sort of moved more towards 13% rather than 11. But he only walked two guys per nine and he struck out over 15. You go back a year to 2017, he struck out 12 per nine. He walked twice as many. His home run to fly ball rate was pretty similar. It was 14%, but his ex-FIP was up to 394, and his true FIP was 402. So again, he performed at about the right rate. When you look at all those numbers, it makes sense. He was a worse pitcher. He struck out 12 per 14, so he did worse in every category. Now, here's where things get interesting. Is you go to 2019, he struck out 15.36 batters per nine again, which should be good for FIP. That should yeah, look really incredible. good. that's incredible. His home run to fly ball rate was an unsustainable and absurd 27%. That is just, that as as a man who watched Edwin Diaz blow far too many saves last year, I mean, Edwin Diaz was the difference between the Mets winning the second wild card and not winning it last year. You know what? It literally looked like every time... Every time someone hit the ball in the air, it went out of the park. Exactly. But just think about this, folks. Literally more than a quarter of fly balls that Edwin Diaz gave up were over the fence for a home run. That's absurd. But he only walked three and a half, which is way worse than 2018, but better than 2017. And for that reason, even though he was so bad, his ERA last year was 5.59, and in 2017 it was 3.27. His XFIP last year was only 3.07. And, and that's, again, why you look at some projection systems, which are what we talked about in the first episode, and they still look at Edwin Diaz as a, as a pitcher who's going to be a top 10 reliever in baseball. Exactly. Because they're not looking at sort of his ERA from last year. They're looking at some sort of the inputs to his peripheral stats like FIP and saying, there's still the skills of an incredible pitcher mm-hmm. in here, and he's a guy that got really unlucky last year. And that actually goes to a little thing for all my fantasy players out there. A way to find great value in drafts is look at people who very, very severely underperformed in terms of XFIP or in terms of expected WOBA or in terms of any expected statistic. If there's a huge gap there and you look at their uh, batted ball data or their pitch data and everything looks the same, it's possible guys have an unlucky season. And what's so amazing is that now we have tools to help assess whether we think they had an unlucky season. There's numbers to back it up, and that's so exciting. That's one of the great things about baseball. Yeah, so one last point I want to make on sort of fielding independent pitching stats is that we've talked a lot about uh, war over the last few episodes, but one thing that we've sort of skirted over is that there are different measures of war. And the two main measures are Fangraph's war. Fangraph's a site we've talked a lot about, Mm -hmm. about a lot. And then there's also Baseball Reference War, which is another amazing, you know, baseball stats site. But these two sites approach their war calculation a little differently for hitters, but they approach it a lot differently for pitchers. Fangraphs basically has a war that's based on their on a player's FIP. Not their ex-FIP, but their FIP. And Baseball References uh, war for pitchers is actually based on the actual number of ran- runs they allowed. So it's more it's closer to, to their ERA. 
Baseball Reference does make an attempt to adjust for how good the defense is behind the pitcher, so it's not just their ERA. But but they trust on their internal model, whereas Fangraphs Reference basically says XFIP is a very good formula. We're not going to try and put in all the externalities into the formula itself. Exactly, and I think as we learn more and more about you know what goes into a good pitcher. FIP is not exactly right. Pitchers no. do have some control over the type of contact they allow, but I do think FIP is... I think a, they have a lot of control. They, they have a lot of control over it, but I think, you know, given no other knowledge, I think looking at a player's FIP is going to be better than looking at their ERA right. for looking how well they pitch in a given season. And I also, you know, but I think the right war is some mix of Fangraph's pitcher war and some and, mix yeah. of baseball reference war. The actual right one, who knows? That's something that's open to further debate and further study. But I think, you know, this was an important, you know, segue into how we evaluate pitchers in the more advanced world. 100%. And something that uh, you guys will see as we go on is that this is how you develop new statistics. And this is generally how you analyze new data sets in even a more broader sense is that you start with something very general and you get that to look right and FIP is right but then you start to hone it more and more and so I think as the years go on we will see better formulas and maybe some of our listeners today will be the people who create those formulas in the future and that that's would, so exciting that would us. be awesome okay so now that we're done with this episode stat corner where we talk about you know the first pitching stat we really talk about yeah let's move into our fourth division preview and i do want to note because we've we've heard some feedback from listeners that our episodes are maybe going a little long for their taste i think our goal in the future is to have our episodes come in a bit shorter than they've been coming but given that we really want to give in-depth previews for you, for the, you guys, you know, you know, if there's if there's a Pirates fan out there, I don't want them sitting there being Feeling like short change. Yeah, why yeah. why didn't you talk about the Pirates that much in your NL Central preview? So we're really trying to give in-depth previews on every team. So I think these episodes where we're doing sort of our season preview are going to run a bit longer than the typical right. episodes we have in the future. But with that being said. Let's move into our NL West preview. Give me... Uh, yeah, and we're doing the NL West today, guys. Um, yeah, he just broke the surprise. Yeah. I am so, so excited about this. So we're doing the NL West. As you guys uh, know, if you've listened to the first three episodes or are just learning if this is your first time joining us, I'm a massive Diamondbacks fan. I'm from Arizona. Um, I really found my attachment to the D-backs when I left Arizona, um, and I've held on to it ever since. So I followed them voraciously over the last couple of years. I'm so excited for this division this year, but as much as I love the D-backs, Sam, and I'm just going to break the spell here, the Dodgers are the best team not only in this division, but in the National League, and so they and definitely And have, arguably the whole league. You could yeah. e easily argue that they're the best team in baseball, especially after getting Mookie Betts, so they, for me, are still the number one team in this league. All right, why don't you just go one for five? One through five for me. So as I just mentioned, I have the Dodgers. At number two, I do have my little snakes, the D-backs. Amazing offseason moves this year. A bunch of talents in the lineup. A manager who, and I'm sorry, Dad, is very good at managing <laughs> baseball. My dad hates <laughs> he hates it for some reason. Tori Lovello. And, and and just before I let Aaron go, go on, you know, our dads have both been very instrumental in forming our baseball fandom. We are thinking about having either of them on to give – some of their thoughts on the baseball season Definitely. as it comes on. I think that'll be a fun segment. Definitely, for you guys. we'll get uh, we'll get two old guys' perspectives on baseball coming up. 
So for me, third is the Padres. I also don't think that's super controversial. That's a pretty good team, but I don't think they rise to the level. You may disagree there, but I think four and five maybe um, are the same. For four, I have the Rockies, and for five, I have the Giants, who just this year are simply not that good a team. And I will take this opportunity to say, thank God, because I hate the Giants, and I specifically hate uh, fans of Bay Area sports who are disloyal um, and who often give me a lot of crap for my this fandom. is this is surprisingly one of the big arguments between Aaron and my girlfriend <laughs> but, <laughs> but, 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 we'll, but we'll leave this for another yeah, time for another episode yeah I, okay let me go through what I have it is mostly the same but I differ from you in one way that I think will not make you happy um, oh you son <laughs> of a god I already know what you're gonna say okay so I I also have the Dodgers number one you'd have to be a crazy person right. to not have right. that they're amazing with number two, when I started these rankings, I had the D-backs. You're pandering. But as I started going through, looking at the Padres, I thought, oh, I actually think they're better than the D-backs. So I have the Padres number two. I have the D-backs number three. And then my four and five are the same as you. Uh, I have right. the Rockies at four and the Giants at five. So let's start going through these teams. Last week, or, or sorry, when we, the last time we disagreed, which was the NL Central, we went through in my order, so th- this time let's do your order. All right. Yeah, I like that. So for the Dodgers, I, I mean, for their strength, I really wrote everything. You guys look at this team, and all through the, the both the lineup, the bullpen, the starters, they're really deep. I mean, they've got Cody Bell. My lineup is is really my focus here. They have Cody Bellinger, Mookie Betts, Corey Seager, Justin Turner, Max Muncy, Jock Peterson, Gavin Lux, Wilson, oh my God. Austin Barnes, AJ Pollock, Chris Taylor, Enrique Hernandez. I mean, they, they what could, is that, 13 players yeah, who could start on most other teams they, in the majors? They could field like a second team that probably wouldn't get last in this division. I agree. It's incredible what they've done. And then their pitching is great too. So I'm curious, what did you have as the strength? So my strength was their depth, yeah. their star power, and that, that basically means everything. That's basically you know, everything. If yeah. I had to point to a weakness, I'd probably say the bullpen, but I still think it's a good bullpen. Yeah, so for me, their weakness is less so their bullpen and more the back end of their rotation. Because anytime I'm seeing, you know, the likes of the top three are a lock. Clayton Kershaw, Walker Buehler, David Price are all locked in for what they're going to do. I think Walker Buehler may not be as good as last year, but he's still a great pitcher. Clayton Kershaw, one of the greatest pitchers of our generation, maybe the greatest I, pitcher I, of our generation. I, I, in fact, I think there's not really an argument. I think he is the greatest. Yeah, pitcher I would agree. Generation. I mean, what yeah. he's done is is truly, truly tremendous. Um, and then David Price, you know, he's not pitching his best anymore, but he's still super reliable. Outside of injury, you know what he's going to give you. But then here's where I'm concerned. Julio Urias, Alex Wood, Dustin May, Ross Stripling. Those are all guys who are actually really good pitchers, and this just speaks to how good this team is. But if I have to pick an area of concern, number four and five in that rotation could either be incredible value and upside, which would be amazing, or it could be actually a very, very dark time for them, and it could hurt them in a potentially shortened or double-header-ridden season where you really need those guys to pitch well. Yeah, but I guess you could also imagine in sort of a double-header season teams moving to sort of like four-man rotations and going with more bullpen games or something. And and I guess what I want to emphasize is that the Dodgers are such a smart smart organization that in any sort of weird season, 
where like you have to use your organizational depth and smart ways. Like I trust them to figure it out right. and do it right. I mean, this is a team that like if we're really talking about it, they found a way to grow homegrown talent like Gavin Lux and like Will Smith. And even guys like Willie Calhoun, who they traded away to the Rangers. But at the same time, they found a way to acquire incredible veteran talent, exactly like uh, David Price and exactly like Mookie Betts, especially, who let's not forget that they basically just acquired the second best player in baseball. Between defense and offense, he's never had a minus defensive value season, and many times he's been worth more than 10 defensive runs. Offensively, he's... Amazing. He's incredible. Yeah. He's probably the third best hitter I, in baseball behind Yelich and Trout. I feel like pe- like people almost underrate the season that Mookie Betts had last year because it wasn't the same as his MVP season. But, but he, it was still amazing. He was still one of the top ten players in baseball. And I'd basically say right now in Bellinger, in Bellinger and Betts, the Dodgers probably have two of the five best players in baseball. Yeah, yeah 100%. And then don't forget that like you go down to Kershaw and yeah – Kershaw's tailed off, but people actually really just think that because in 2018, he was kind of rough. He only threw 160 innings, but he had a 2.73 ERA. Last year, he had a 3.03 ERA, which, if you can believe this, is the most he's ever had in a season since his rookie season. Yeah. He's never had a 3.03 ERA. This is why he's <laughs> the pitcher of our generation. That's insane. And it's also insane that, like, Kershaw has a 3.03 ERA, and people are like, oh, he's washed. Oh, he's washed. <laughs> yeah. He's done. Like, this guy, the standard for ERA, as most of you I'm sure know, is three or under is amazing. Yeah. He's never had a season in his career, besides his rookie season, where he was over three until last year, where he was 3-0-3. He's amazing still. Walker Bueller is a, an absolute stud, and I do see some regression from him this year, because he was a little bit... Um, he, was, he was almost too dominant to believe last year, despite the 3.26 ERA. Um, and the 301 FIP. He, he was, so he actually got a bit unlucky last year, according to Fielding it's Independent. It's true. Coaching. His yeah. ex-FIP was about 35 points higher than his FIP. Okay. So there's there's some questions there, but I do believe he's great. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things to emphasize with the Dodgers is like there are all these insane superstars, but then you go to the next level of the team and you're like, oh, wait, they're also former superstars. And my player to watch is Corey Seager. And this is a guy who I think, you know, he got hurt. He's one of the rare position players who had to get Tommy John surgery, and he missed most of his 2018 season. But if we look back to sort of 2016 and 2017, Corey Seager was one of the upcoming superstars in the game, and Fangraphs does uh, something called the trade value rankings every year, where they basically rank the top 50 players in trade value in the year. Super fun. A couple other places do it, too. Check it out during a regular season. It's really fun, but I think Corey Seager at the end of the 2017 season was number two. Right. So we're talking about a guy who was previously viewed as one of the most... The two most valuable players in baseball, and he's almost an afterthought in these in this Dodgers lineup. And like, if he can regain superstardom form, because you know, again, last year was his first sort of real season back from Tommy John surgery. If he's back to where he was in 2017, like that's just another superstar on this team. It's insane. And Sam, I'm with you 100, percent but I'm concerned about last season because in 2016 and 2017, he was worth. 13 and 15 basically defensive runs and 33 and 25 offensive runs. That's amazing. But in 2019, he played basically as many games. He had 100 less plate appearances, more or less, than the other two seasons. But he was only worth 12 offensive runs and four defensive runs. So somehow, Tommy John, according to conventional wisdom for position players, 
really should only affect your throwing arm. It, it shouldn't really come back and affect your swing. What we worry about with swings are shoulders, we worry about your lower half, and we worry about forearms and wrists. But yeah, the Tommy John really shouldn't affect it, but we did see something. So the question becomes, and I, I you know, I, I like Corey Seager, so I'm, I'm kind of rooting for him outside of uh, hoping the Dodgers just implode and the D-backs come in the division. But the question becomes, was last year a recalibration to baseball after a full year off, which is totally possible? Or is last year kind of an, an exposition in what his career is going to look like? I don't know. I yeah, really don't. I think, I think that's an interesting thing to watch going into the season. Okay, we, we've talked about how just incredibly awesome the Dodgers are. They're good. With that, let's just let's move to your stakes. You have them at number two. Tell me about the D-backs, Aaron. All right. Well, if we're talking about the D-backs, I mean, let's just talk about their lineup construction from the top. Carson Kelly is, is projected to catch most of the games behind the dish this year. The D-backs have a habit of carrying three catchers. It looks like this year, for the most part, they'll carry two, maybe a little John Hicks mixed in. They have Christian Walker, massive breakout at first base. He was great last he year. He was great last year. Yeah. Ketel Marte is one of the new superstars in our league at second base. We'll talk about him in much more he, depth. He is my player to watch, so great. we'll definitely talk about him. My player to watch is the shortstop Nick Ahmed, who is one of the most undervalued players in baseball. Eduardo Escobar, who I think everyone knows how good he is, David Peralta, Starling Marte, and a great cheap pickup in Cole Calhoun. And, and Marte is a guy who was rumored to the Mets a lot of this offseason. Yeah. Ended up on the D-backs. I have to say, I'm happy that the Mets uh, kept Brandon Nimmo. Spoiler alert, when we get to the Mets in the NL East, Brandon Nimmo will be my player to watch. But, uh, and I hope Brandon Nimmo's <laughs> great because I took him in my fantasy draft. But I, you I, I basically, Starling Marte is a, an amazing player. He is incredible. But quick, sorry, not incredible. He's very good. Quick aside, I did basically tell Aaron that I would I would have to end this podcast if he did not take <laughs> Brandon Nimmo in the last round of his fantasy draft. That's true. But in the interest of time, I'm going to focus on the D-backs here. We'll get to my my Mets feelings later. Look, it's not just a lineup. The D-backs are so deep, I didn't even go into their backup players. And Tori Lovello does a great job of putting these guys in a position to win. But then when you go to their lineup, they just picked up Mad Bum. Yeah, they lost Zach Greinke. That hurt. Zach Greinke's a great pitcher. But they have Robbie Ray. They have Mad Bum. They have Zach Gallen, an exciting young arm who I'll talk about. They have Luke Weaver, another exciting young arm. Merrill Kelly and Mike Leake. They have Alex Young, Taylor Clark, and Edwin Jackson. So... Yes, they don't have a clear number one in this league. No one on that rotation is a definite number one, but I think Robbie Ray and Madison Bumgarner are twos in almost every rotation and ones in many rotations in the league. I think Zach Gallen is a very solid three. I think Luke Weaver has a chance to pitch like a two or a three. I think Merrill Kelly is an innings eater at three or four. I don't love Mike Leake, but he has proven himself more than capable to eat innings in the major leagues, and of course, I saw him pitch eight and one-third inning of perfect baseball in Seattle just two years ago. So oh, we can never that must have that. been devastating when he gave it up. The the fans in front of me, I was in Safeco with my girlfriend watching Mike League pitch. The fans in front of me keep going, "Oh, he's got a perfect game," and I keep going, "Shut up!" <laughs> I've, I've never seen a perfect game in my life. I was so excited, but the, so this the furthest team, I've gotten is six of two thirds. Of John Maine going John Maine, not oh not God. perfect, but going no hit in the second to last game of the 2000 season, 2007 Mets season before they lost the final game, which I was also at oh my God. and completed the biggest blow up in Major League Baseball I history. Love that. 
So, I mean, the only thing really that, you know, I, I'm super concerned about the D-backs. There's question marks, as there are with every team. The bullpen scares me. It's, it's not great. It's deep. You, you like Archie Bradley, though, right? Yeah, yeah. So the bullpen yeah. is deep. It's very deep. Um, but there's no, like, top-tier relievers in there. So I trust Bradley, but not, not necessarily to close, which is the position they haven't been this year. I trust Junior Guerra, but again, not necessarily to close. Then as you go down, Andrew Chafin, Hector Adon, Kevin Geinkel, Yolan Lopez. Those are all guys who have either performed very recently or uh, performed last year very, very well. So there's a lot of talent there, a lot of depth. But what concerns me is at the end of the game, I've seen Archie Bradley struggle to get outs. Who's going to shut the door in a one-run ball game with a runner on second base? Archie scares me, although I love him. I love the beard. I love the intensity. I love what he brings to the team. There's a question there for me. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think our perspective on the D-backs is pretty similar. And again, you know, I know I put the Padres second, but I really think the D-backs and Padres are really close. I agree with you that, you know, I as their strength. They really don't have any holes in that lineup. Like, I, I think it's really deep. And I think Cattell Marte, who's my player to watch, is like someone that people don't realize how good he was last year. I mean, he was fourth in the NL MVP, but, you know, he ran a 150 WRC plus last year. If he repeats, you know, last season, he's emerged as a legitimate top 10 player in the league. But basically, if you look at the progression of him as a player, he's always combined sort of good contact with good plate yep. discipline, yep. where he's had low strikeout rates, but also been able to walk. What he added last year was the power. Was the power. And we'll see if that continues, if the you know, if the balls sort of go back to where they were before that. But But for me, Sam, Cattell Marte's a guy who the balls were certainly a factor. They were a factor for everything. Yeah. But for him, it's like it's not a question what happened. You look at him in 2017 and 18, and then you look at him in 2019 and you're like, oh my God. This guy went from a skinny, quick second baseman to like massive. He is a beefcake. He's got buys that'll hit the ball out of the park. He's still running with speed. He's a massive guy. He's super exciting. I love that you picked him as your player to watch. A guy I have is somebody that I think if you're not a D-backs fan or if you don't love watching the NL West or watching defense, you may not appreciate. Nick Ahmed is their shortstop. As an offensive player, he's relatively average. 7 to 8% walk rate, 18 to 20% strikeout rate. He's going to hit 20-ish bombs. But that's still a decent offensive player. Where he brings a ton of value is in defense. He is maybe the best defensive shortstop in baseball. Yeah, I mean, I still, I'd still give it to Angleton Simmons. but Well, you know, we'll see what he does this year. But yeah, in general, yeah. I think that's a fair debate. And anytime you can mention a guy in that ilk for defensive value, you're looking really, really good. So I think kind of all around... Uh, what we can say about the D-backs is that they really don't have a ton of holes. I think what Sam is worried about, if I'm just summing this up, is that they don't really have the type of starting pitching that can win a wild yeah. card, that can go out and dominate. I, I, I think they have a lot of good... I, I think they have a lot of guys that you'd be happy to have as like your four in your rotation, but not really a lot of guys that I'd love to have as my one or two. Well, so what do you feel about Mad Bum, though? Like, where do you think he fits? I mean, I like, I didn't love Mad Bum's contract. I think, like, given similar value, I would have way rather gotten, like, what the Phillies gave Zach Wheeler. Uh, like, I think he's a better pitcher at this point in their career. And, you know, maybe I'm biased because I love Zach Wheeler. But, like, uh, you know, I again, I, I 
I can see the D-backs definitely getting second in this division and winning the wild card. Like, I think the difference between them and the Padres is very small. Right. But, like, you know, I just... I think there are a lot of these guys in this rotation who I think are, again, threes and fours, not ones and twos. I could see them ending up being twos. There's really no one in the in the in the rotation that I really see as an ace. You know, maybe Zach Gallon a couple of years down yeah, the line. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. I don't I don't see an ace in that rotation either. But I just think the value of especially the way they've constructed their team with a lot of hitting, a bullpen that's pretty good, but not a ton of guys who want to eat a ton of innings in the bullpen. The value of him throwing 200 innings again, which he's done every year in his career, basically, except for the two years where he had that crazy dirt bike injury because he's a maniac, and a bull riding injury because he's a maniac. I think the value of him throwing 200 innings cannot be overstated in today's game. Their bullpen is is thin enough where that value, I think, maybe supersedes the three-tenths of a run in FIP or ERA that Zach Wheeler might give you over him. That's my opinion. Maybe the secret is I'm still mad at Mad Bum over the 2016 wild card. Could be. All right, so let's move to your number three, my number two, the Padres. Well, why don't you start with them? Because you like them so much, I don't fully understand. Okay, so what I like about the Padres is I think the bullpen is really good. Kirby Yates was one of the top three relievers in baseball last year. And I really like sort of that they're just going for it. They have a. They sort of have spent a long time building up their farm system, and sort of the last couple of years they say, okay, we have the young talent, so let's now add some veteran pieces. People like Tommy Pham, people like Trent Grisham. Of course, they signed Machado lot last offseason, and they said, let's build around all the pieces we've got, and let's just go for it. And I really think there's enough talent on this team that they can get second in the NL West. To me, like, I understand what you're saying. My strength for them is, quote-unquote, pieces. They have a bunch of great pieces that all fit together well. They also have a bunch of great young talent. But for me, I actually disagree. I think that they fostered so much great talent in their minor league system, then they spent it on Francisco Mejia. Then they spent it on, well, Eric Cosmo was a free agent signing, but they spent a ton of money on him. They went and got Jerks and Profar. Like, they went and got a bunch of outfielders who are good, but their outfield is already stacked. It doesn't really make sense to me the way that they've d- gone and created this lineup. I think it's it's good, but not great. And then when you go to their rotation, this is the big, big point for me. When you go to their rotation, currently the highest war projection is for Chris Paddock. I think that's correct, but he probably is not their opening day starter. After that, you have Joey Lucchese, Zach Davies, Garrett Richards, Denilson Lamott, and then you're hoping to get something from Mackenzie Gore. Who is, like, arguably the best pitching prospect in baseball. Oh, absolutely, yeah. and Mackenzie Gore is worth speaking about. We will in a second, but let me just say that beyond Chris Paddock, who is my player to watch, and who, by the way, is one of the sickest players in baseball, he shows up in the hat, he has so much swag on the mound, he has so much confidence, he throws basically three pitches, more or less. He throws them all for strikes. He throws. He just is an unbelievable pitcher coming in, and he has good stuff. I love Chris Paddock. As a member of the Alonzo Bet podcast, I am appalled at your support for Chris Paddock right now. Chris Paddock is a man that came after our Lord and Savior, Pete Alonzo. After Pete Alonzo won Rookie of the Month early in the season, he said, hey, I'm looking for Rookie of the Year. Well, you know, there's a line that Omar says in one of the best shows of all time, The Wire, where he says, A-O-Bay. 
You come at the king, you best not miss. Pete Alonso is that king. And who ended up winning Rookie of the Year? It was Pete Alonso, not Chris Paddock. So while I do think Chris Paddock is going to be a great pitcher in this year, I just cannot let you say anything nice about him on this podcast. He was way too mean to Pete Alonso. But Sam, you're what's wrong in baseball, buddy. <laughs> I want baseball players coming out and saying, all right, you won Rookie of the Month. I'm going to win Rookie of the Year and then going out and trying to do it. Who cares if they don't? I love to see that passion. I love to see that fire out of guys, their personalities that we are hoping to see on display more this year with the microphones out. Yeah, I think your I think your point is right, but don't come at Pete because I'll right. come at you. So just to finish this off, all I'm saying is beyond Chris Paddock, I don't trust any guys in their rotation. I don't trust Lucchese. I don't trust Davies. Garrett Richards is an amazing pitcher, but can he stay healthy? He hasn't done it for years now. I will say, though, like I think the Padres' rotation is better than the D-back. You're wrong, though. How could that possibly be? You could maybe argue, maybe, that Chris Paddock is a better pitcher than anyone in the D-backs rotation. I would personally agree with that argument, but it's unproven because he only threw 160-ish innings last year. After that, no one in that rotation is as good as Robbie Ray or Madison Bumgarner, and you, it would be really... I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Dillison Lamette fan. Okay. There, 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 there it goes. I said it. Okay. <laughs> My feeling is that no one in that rotation is as good as Bad Bum or Robbie Ray, with maybe the exception of Chris Paddock. And frankly, I wouldn't take any of these guys, except for maybe Garrett Richards, if you could promise me a healthy season this year, over Zach Allen. So when you put that all together, there's no way. Yes, their bullpen's better. Kirby Yates is really good. Craig Salmon's good. But where I think maybe we disagree the most on this team is that beyond Yates, Salmon, and Emilio Pagan, do we trust this rotation? Is Drew Pomeranz really going to K like a million guys in I mean, the league again? Yeah, I mean, I think Drew Pomeranz basically proved last year when you put him in the bullpen, he's going to be an elite bullpen arm. That's what he was last year after he went to the bullpen. No, but he pitched in the bullpen for the Red Sox the year before and he struck out almost four batters less per game. Like, there's something else going on here. And when you look at his baseball savant page, sure, you see an uptick in the usage of some pitches and you really see that he kind of changed the way that he was throwing his curve. He definitely changed the way he was throwing his changeup. His cutter got into it more. His sinker became a more active pitch. So his pitch breakdown did change. You can see that on Baseball Savant. But not so significantly that I feel like it's a almost four uptick in Ks per nine. I don't know about Drew Pomeranz. And I definitely don't know about anyone else in that rotation beyond, or in that bullpen I mean, beyond. Like, I think Matt Strom is pretty good. He's so. okay, but what do you know about him, right? Like, yeah, but I, I mean, I think you can say that when you get into the depths of any bullpen. Like, maybe except the Yankees. But, like, I, I think the Padres... For the, the Padres, though, I'm sorry. I, I just For the Padres, that's not the depths. That's the fifth guy out of the pen. That is still a guy who is going to throw a lot of innings during the season... Even if it's not a lot, it, it will be a lot of innings this year because of the three batter rule. But even if it's not a lot of innings, you'll see him a lot, a lot of yeah. appearances. No, yeah, and I think we'll see. And again, I think I think the Padres and D-backs are going to be pretty close, and it can go either way from, between them. There's one player I do want to highlight before we move on from, from the Padres, and that's my player to watch. That's Fernando Tatis Jr. And you know, this is basically one of the most hyped players in baseball. Yeah. Again, if this guy had, hadn't gotten hurt last year and they played all the season. He easily could have won NL Rookie of the Year over Pete Alonso, who you know, you know, set the rookie home run record, right. hit the most home runs in baseball. 
So that's like insane. If you look at his WRC plus last year, it was it was 150. He was absolutely incredible. And now, in just 84 games, he bopped 22 homers and stole 16 bases as well as driving in 16 yeah, rounds. Yeah, he was absolutely he was an absolute phenom last year. He was incredible. There are a couple places where I want to be a bit of a bummer and spell a little doubt on him repeating that. One is he had an insanely unsustainable batting average on balls in yeah, play. Yeah. We talked about this oh, yeah. a bit last week, but he had a 410 Babbitt. That is simply not going to happen again. And, you know, he's a guy that, you know, can do a lot of damage when he hits the ball, but he does have a high strikeout percentage. He struck out basically 30% of the time last year. But another place that I want to sort of put our focus to is that he was really not a good defensive shortstop last no. year. Which is surprising for a lot of people to hear because if you watch him out there, he's making some insane plays. He clearly has the skill. Right. So the question is, where did it go wrong? A lot of the problem was he was making a lot of errant throws. I think that's something he can definitely clean up. But if you look at uh, outs above average, which is a new advanced defensive statistic that has a lot of promise, it's put out by Baseball Savant. We'll get into it and, in some of the next And they basically, they basically use StatCast data – and they and they really get into the granular detail. You'll see that he was the worst shortstop in the league last year at making plays on coming in, exactly. which is really interesting. So again, if that's a skill that he can improve on, we could see him. Again, he has the skills to really, I think, stick at shortstop and even be a good defensive shortstop. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just something we need to keep an eye on. Can he stick at shortstop? Play good defense there. Will he still be as good of a hitter when the when the batting average on balls in play regresses to normal a bit? And I think he's an interesting guy to watch this year. But again, he's going to be an exciting star in this league for a while. Yeah, no, he's definitely a star in this league. But I think Sam brings up a really good point. Is like He gets this rap as being one of the best players in baseball, potentially. But if he doesn't improve his defense, and if he continues to kind of rely on having a 400 Babbitt, I, there's just no way that he reaches that potential that everyone sees of him. He definitely has time to turn around, and I'll be curious if he does. So let's move on now to the Rockies. Um, for the Rockies, you know, I feel that this is a team that's fallen precipitously lately, and their strength is probably their lineup, a lot of solid guys in there, especially the left side of their infield, but their weakness is definitely their pitching, and that goes all the way down to the bullpen. Yeah, so I mean, I know you you hate their bullpen, and I'll let you talk about that in a second, but it- you know, I do want to talk about the top of their pitching staff, which is, you know, John Gray and, and Jeremy Marquez. Uh, or maybe it's Herman Marquez. So, sorry about that. But, you know, Herman Marquez is my player to watch. And I think he's a great example of the type of player that fits into this uh, fielding and independent pitching stats. So if you look at 2018, Herman Marquez was a player who we really saw as a potential breakout star in this league. He really had a great year pitching in Coors Field, um, which is a really hard thing to do. And then you look at his stats last year. He had a 4.76 ERA, which might seem like he had a bad season. But then if you go and look at his FIP, it was only 4.06. And if you look at his ex-FIP, it was 3.54. So now you start to see Herman, Herman Marquez is the type of guy that actually was a bit of an unlucky pitcher last year and is actually a guy that you know, still flashes the same type of upside and stuff as he did two years ago. And I think if you look at Herman Marquez from that perspective, you really see him as a burgeoning star in this league. Maybe not, you know, a superstar pitcher, but definitely the type of guy that can challenge to be an all-star pitcher in this league 
from year to year. I also like John Gray at the top of that rotation. I agree with you that past those two guys, the pitching gets a bit ugly. But Herman Marquez, I'm looking looking at him as a guy that can have a bounce back year because of sort of the fielding independent pitching stats. And and again, I still think John Gray is pretty good. Yeah, so I actually totally agree about Herman Marquez. He's a guy who Ks a lot of batters, which is what keeps the fifth low. He, He doesn't have a terrible walk rate. And he's overall interesting because he's got amazing stuff. But I do worry about both him and Gray. Gray's a guy who we've seen sent down to the minors in the middle of a major league season before because he just couldn't figure it out. Herman Marquez really only has one good season under his belt. And then beyond that, it's a bunch of guys that are decent streams for fantasy but are absolute nightmares to rely on in your bullpen, and that includes, or in your starting rotation, and that includes Kyle Freeland, Antonio Sensatella, Jeff Hoffman, and Peter Lambert. But then even as you go deeper... My big problem with them, their starting rotation is bad, but my big problem with them is really their bullpen. Wade Davis is no longer a good reliever. Scott Oberg is, but he's not a closer. I don't even really know who Yairo Diaz is, who Fangraphs has projected for the third most or the second most war in that bullpen. This bullpen is really bad. Jake McGee, Carlos Estevez, Brian Shaw. I've said this in the past, and I will put in kind of the disclaimer here that In terms of bad bullpens, it's definitely not the worst because you have a bunch of guys here who have been successful in the past. Jake McGee has been a good reliever in the past. Brian Shaw has some good years for the Indians. But they haven't been good lately. They don't do what you need to do in today's game, which is strike out a lot of batters. And that's twice as important when you're playing half your games in Mile High Stadium out there in Denver. If they play everything in Arizona, maybe that's downplayed a little bit, but... If you're going to play a full season, 162 games in Denver, you better have a pitching staff that can cope with the unreasonable, I guess, altitudes that exist in Denver and be able to keep the ball in the yard. They don't have that in their starting rotation. They don't have that in their bullpen. And their lineup is good, but again, not great. I don't think that this team... Yeah. really has a chance at competing for anything and, higher. And, than and, you know, you mentioned the left side of their infield as a strength. I really think it's a crime how, they, how they've built around Arenago and Story because that's just such an incredible core mm-hmm. to have. And the inability over the last few years for the Rockies to put the talent surrounding those guys that is necessary to win, it, it's really a failure on the part of the front office. And, you know, I think they've they've lost their window. Arenago's unhappy there. I don't see him being there mm-hmm. in the long term. So, I, yeah, I really think this is the type of thing that the the Rockies have missed out on their window because of mismanagement by the front office. And I think, you know, you bring up a good point uh, there with Trevor Story. He's my player to watch. Trevor Story is, like, somehow still underrated in this league. He's hitting over 35 homers a year the last two years. He's driving in close to 100 runs. He's scoring close to 100 runs. He's sure he's caying 25% of the time, but he's still hitting 291 with sustainable Babbitts. And at the end of the day, his WRC plus is high because he's stealing bases. He's hitting homers. He's going for extra bases. And uh, Trevor Story is a true star. Nolan Arenado is one of the best players in baseball. He is one or two or three third basemen in baseball. And Sam's right. They've really done a poor job of building around this team, so I think fourth place is a lock for them this year. 
Okay, so let's move to our, our basement dweller here, and that's the Giants. So, like, again, as you've, you know, we've really ragged on some of the, you know, the fifth choices in a lot of other divisions we've done so far. I don't think the Giants are quite as bad as some of these yeah, other fifth spots. Not. But, like, again, I don't think the Giants are very good. If I had to point to a strength, I think they have, like, some solid veterans, but there's not much there. Yeah, so they have veteran talent. They have Posey. They have Belt. They have Brandon Crawford. They have Evan Longoria. But, like, those are guys who you'd be like, oh, what a wonderful veteran clubhouse presence that could come off the bench. The Giants are expecting these guys to produce in high quantities, and it goes through their rotations. Samarja, Cueto. I, I don't really see anything this team does particularly well. I have the same strength, though, veteran talent. But my weakness really is pitching because – the lineup could get by with the veteran talent. It wouldn't be good, but it would be okay. It, I mean, honestly... It would still be the yeah. worst in the division, but it would be yeah. okay. The pitching rotation, though, is not just the worst in the division. It's very scary all around. Samarja and Cueto could potentially eat innings, but God, are they boring, ineffective starters. They're not caring a ton of batters. They're giving up a ton of runs. And it, it's not pretty. Kevin Gossman... He's very interesting to me because he's been good and could be good again, especially in a place like Oracle, formerly AT&T Park out there in San Francisco. But he also hasn't been good for most of his career. And then you're going into Drew Smiley and Andrew Suarez. This is a nightmare in their rotation. And I don't think that this rotation, combined with that lineup, could win any division in baseball. I don't even think they could compete for a wild card in any division in baseball. No, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think this is a team that could possibly comp- compete for a playoff spot. I do think they're a team that, again, is better than some other fifth spots in other divisions. My player to watch in this, uh, for this team was, honestly, I struggled to pick one. But I went with Buster Posey because I just want to highlight that he's a guy that's still playing a lot of catcher and has just been good for yeah. so many years. Like, he's a guy that, you know, has been above average hitter for a decade now and that's hard to find at the catcher spot i think if he can keep it going for a few more years he could be a borderline hall of fame case and i I I think he already is a borderline hall of fame case just because he plays catcher i mean if you think about it like last year was his first year below average but before that from 2010 to 2018 eight years in a row as a catcher he was a positive offensive force and a positive defensive force at times very positive in both. In 2012, 13, 14, 15, and 16, he was worth more than 20 runs defensively and close to 20 runs offensively, as high as 42 offensive runs and 37 and defensive did, runs. Did he win MVP in 2012? I do believe he yeah. has an MVP under his belt as well. So at the end of the day, like this is a guy who's amazing, but I do believe that he's kind of – he was the 2012 MVP – He's kind of at the end of his rope here. Um, he's still going to bring value because he's but playing a premium I, position I, and he's playing it well. I still think he's the best position player on the Padres. Uh, sorry, on the Giants. Yeah, but I think yeah. that speaks to how weak they are. My player yeah. to watch is Mike Yastrzemski. This is a guy who, like, honestly, I'm not crazy about as a player, but I love the whole narrative with him and his um, dad or uncle, I forget, Carl. I think it's his grandpa. His grandpa, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Um and last year, he was good. He wasn't, okay, he wasn't yeah. great, but he was good. You know, he hit 21 bombs and 411 plate appearances. He had a 121 WRC+. When you look through his minor league career, he mostly had 
a above average WRC plus. So he's a he's a good player. But he's not he's the most exciting young player on their team and I think that actually goes to the most important thing we need to say about the Giants, which is that they went from winning every other even-yeared World Series, right? There was that giant streak for a while, 10, 12, uh, 14. 14. And we were like, wow, this team's really good. And they had an opportunity there where they had started to deplete their farm system. They had kept their core. They could have sold out after 14 or even after 15. They still had the opportunity. They could have said, you know what? We don't have it anymore. We need to kind of rebuild. But because of... A million reasons, one of which is the fickle, disgusting <laughs> fandom in San Francisco. You had the Giants insist on trying to win. They sold what little young talent they had. They bought players with money they didn't have. And they tried to get better with a core that was not able to get better. And that's the reason they find themselves here. They really have not a lot of prospects for the future, not a lot of prospects for this year. And all of that can be attributed to the previous administration in San Francisco. Obviously, now you have Farhan Zahidi up there who is going to be doing some good for the Giants. But he took over a very, very tough position. All right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And and with that, let's let's end our... Sorry, sorry. Technically, uh, I'm sorry. Technically, their GM is Scott Harris. But... The guy making decisions is Farhan Zahidi. I mean, he's made—he's the one who's making the trade. So look to him for the answers. Here. And and with that, let's move to a quick, you know, over unders, which we've been doing. So yep. Let's do uh, Dodgers ninety nine. Christ, how do you pick a team to win hundred games? Over. I'm I'm still going over. That yeah. team is so good. D backs eighty three. Over. That's the easiest. If you're looking to bet baseball, that's the easiest bet this season. I'm going under. You're, you're a fool. <laughs> you're a fool. Padres 83. I'm still taking over, actually. I think they're going to do better than that. I'm going over as well. Rockies 74. Under. I think this team implodes. I'm going under as well. I and, think they maybe sell. And Giants 71. Under. They're bad. They're, they, they're a 68 9 win team. I, I agree. I'm going under there. Wow. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us for the fourth episode. As we mentioned, we know this one took an hour 10. In the future, when we're done with these projections, we will make them commuter style. So you'll be able to listen uh, to about 40, 45 minutes, either on the way there and back or just on the way there. But today we feel very passionate about getting you the division previews. And today was one of my most important, the National League West. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, guys. And again, if you have any thoughts on the episode, you want to let us know what you think on these yep. teams, ask us to cover something else, something else in a future episode, get in contact with us, whether it's on Twitter at the Alonzo Bet or on our email, alonzobet at gmail.com. And remember, wherever you're listening to this podcast, Please like and subscribe. It'll help us get out to a, a bigger audience and hopefully, you know, grow this Alonzo Beck community. So with that, we're going to sign off for today's episode. I'm Sam. And I'm Aaron. Thanks so much for joining us and have a great night.